passage this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as you're turning to Matthew 2, I want to go ahead and begin, well, first with an introduction. I'm Nathan Thomas. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, But also an apology. Uh, There is not going to be a sermon outline uh, on the screen this morning. Uh, That's my fault. I I couldn't find uh, where to put all the stuff uh, last night. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize for that. So uh, it's just going to be me, and you get to listen to me. But it should be easy to follow because it is a classic Presbyterian three-point sermon. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, But anyways, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where Christ was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is a story that we get to see uh, wise men reacting to Jesus, responding to the Savior And I ask, Father, that we we may respond likewise. I pray for the sermon. I pray that the Holy Spirit may turn our hearts towards you, our minds towards you, that our souls may be sanctified. And Father, if I preach anything false or untrue, I pray that it falls upon deaf ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this season. I, I, I like the lights. I I like the fellowship, I like the giving of presents, I like the singing, I like the music, I like the movies. I love the celebration of Jesus. Christmas is a wonderful opportunity to share the good news and to celebrate his generous love. When I was young, I always 
you know, December always came with some great anticipation. We would alternate uh, each year. I'd either go to my grandparents up in North Carolina or to my grandparents up in Tennessee. I always looked forward to Christmas morning. And as I grow older, the things I remember are not so much the gifts, but the time spent with family. It was a wonderful time, and it was always a marvelous celebration. And this morning we have a passage where we see men who are coming to Jesus with great anticipation. With great joy. And Matthew calls these men wise men. Now, first of all, let's reflect on who they are and why they are wise. I know one of the carols that I love to sing uh, is We Three Kings. But the funny part about that song is... uh, The Magi, these wise men, they're not kings. Uh, That's not their role. They were men who advised kings. So when you're looking at these wise men, we need to think more like Daniel and less Nebuchadnezzar. And outside of the named gifts, there's no indication that there are only three. Matter of fact, they probably came by the dozen. They come to Jerusalem, and they're large enough that they're going around, and they're asking, hey, we saw the star. We're here to worship the king of Israel, for he is born. Not only did this trouble his Herod, as we talked about last week, but it troubles Jerusalem. So this is more than just like three people going around asking some weird question. This is a caravan coming from the east, seeking the king. And we know they're wise because they see a star in the sky and they immediately think of Numbers 24, where in Balaam's oracles he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And they're wise because they see the star and it's like, he's here, let's go. And they travel and they act on this. They, they have the spiritual wisdom where they see the star and they are going. Now, the Pharisees aren't saying this. They're not looking to the sky. The priests aren't looking at the star and like, ah, the time is now. But these wise men are. Now, they're probably, because they're coming from the east, they're probably working with Gentiles or uh, pagans, if you prefer. They see the star and they go. They know something incredible is happening. And they want to see it. So they travel, they see Jesus, and thus they truly are wise. And from their wisdom, we see three things. From their wisdom, we see one, we should respond to Jesus with exceeding joy, that we should respond to Jesus with worship. And we should respond to Jesus with generosity. Now, the passage tells us they come with exceeding joy, great joy. They're they're not reserved. They're not coming and they're not being very solemn. They're coming with marvelous and wonderful joy. The passage could be read as vehement, massive joy. These men held back Nothing. It's as if they are just giving themselves over to this love, this celebration, this excitement, this happiness, this heavenly joy. They are emptying their reserves of jubilation. 
It makes me think of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, back in 2 Samuel 6. They're bringing the covenant into Jerusalem and David is out there dancing with everyone. The king throwing down, having a celebration because the Ark, God's presence, the throne of God is coming into Jerusalem, into the heart of God's people. David has this massive celebration, so much so that his wife gets like secondhand embarrassment. And she chastises him. And if you're not familiar with the story, it does not go well for her. There, David is having this joyous dancing, and that, that is a far more appropriate response to the presence of God than trying to maintain any false sense of dignity. The ark coming into Jerusalem was a great blessing, and David's partying is partying. But I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus coming into the world is far greater than the ark going into Jerusalem. So if you're not familiar, the ark sat in the temple that was uh, God's throne on earth. It was in Jerusalem. It was in a particular spot. But through Jesus, this temple is not in a particular spot. It is far larger because we see with the writers of the New Testament, God's presence, God's temple is God's people. He dwells in the hearts of his people. That is the temple. That is where God resides on earth. And so the wise men, they are jubilant here because they know Jesus has come. Now we picture wise with often very dignified and solemn, reserved. But again, these men lose themselves in their joy. They're not concerned with their appearance. They, they are there to celebrate. They are there to delight in the king. Now I'm not going to go too far into this. Uh, we just finished the sermon series on joy. It's a marvelous series. Uh, Pastor Stewart uh, led us through a series on joy. And if you want to go back through, you can go to our website or contact the front office. And coming in January, I'll be teaching a class on, in Sunday school on Philippians where joy is a running theme. But I'll say this. The Savior has come. The Savior has given life to his people. He's provided hope. He's given us love. He's given us a faith that we get to see him and know him. And so we should lose ourselves to joy in Jesus. He is the one who brings us salvation. He is the one who makes our hope assured. Where all of our sorrows will be wiped away. All of our hopes fulfilled. All of this is done in Jesus, in Christ. That is cause for joy. Not simple joy, but exceeding joy. So when we come to Jesus, when we look at our Savior, the first response we should see should be exceedingly great joy. And not only joy... But these men have come to worship. 
Uh, verse 11 tells us they, they go into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now let's take a moment and think about this from Mary's perspective. She's back home with a child in the house of a carpenter. Then all of a sudden, a caravan of men from a foreign land roll up to her house and knock on the door, come in, and they're very excited to be there. They're very ecstatic. They're very joyful. And then they fall on their knees and they worship him. Now, to be fair to Mary, she did hear beforehand from an angel that she's going to give birth to a king. But it is one thing to hear the news, and then a complete another thing to have men who sit in the court of kings come into your house and start worshiping the kid that you tend to all day long. They're there worshiping. They're not hiding their joy. No, they're not hiding their intent. They were back in Jerusalem and they were stirring up trouble, saying, hey, where is the king? And now they have found him. There is joyous exaltation and worship. And it's not just the words they're saying. It's not just the songs they're singing. Uh, there is a physical nature. They are on their knees. They are in the presence of the Savior. And so when we look to Christ, when we look to Jesus, when we see and know and taste of the salvation that is good, we should respond to worship. We should respond with praise. Salvation has come. Love is manifested in the fullness of Christ. He is a king who is worthy of worship. He is the one who brings us into his family. He is the one who saves us. There's so much going on in this passage. There's so much that Jesus has done for his people. And so, yes, the love of Christ our amazing and generous and kind and loving Savior should bring us to worship. And not, not just worship, but exuberant worship. There's no reason, none whatsoever, that we need to hold back when we praise the name of Christ. The windows of the sanctuary should shake with our voices as we sing. Now, yes, I'm all for times of quiet reflection. I love being still and knowing that Christ is God. I, I love those times of prayer and meditation. But we also celebrate and we worship because Christ is come. We celebrate and worship because of his saving work. The fact that we have salvation in him. The fact that our sins are forgiven through Christ and the love that he has for us. The fact that our hope is secured in Jesus. We should be moved by that to move. We should praise his name. 
I mean, the largest book in the Bible is a book of songs to worship Jesus. And it ends with this, Psalm 150. Praise him. That's all the psalm is about. It's praising God. And he says, praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. And if that's not enough, he follows it up with praise him with loud crashing cymbals. It just reminds me of middle school when the percussion group would drop the cymbals or the percussion equipment in band class. And the psalmist finishes up with this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And because he's run out of things to say, he goes, praise the Lord. This is the wise thing to do. In coming to Jesus, in seeing and knowing his many blessings, we are to turn around and bless the name of the Lord. We are to bring our hearts and our souls to worship. We are to give back the blessings that he has blessed us with. We are to praise with the fullness of our being. Because God is magnificent. Jesus is king. We have redemption and salvation in him. Praise the Lord. And so we see these wise men, they're joyful with great joy, exceeding joy. They bow down, they, they kneel, they show uh, this amazing worship. And then they follow it up with this incredible generosity. This group of men were incredibly generous. In verse 11, he says, then, so after, after we have this exceeding joy, after we have this worship, then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's as if they just empty their coffers and say, here. Again, imagine being Mary. You're in the house of a carpenter, and all of a sudden you see these riches fit for a king. See, the Magi were wise. They, they knew the worthiness of this child. And they act very similar to the queen of Sheba who goes to Solomon and sees the temple, and they, she offers them gold and spices. These men do something very similar. They offer them gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it is as Isaiah says, they shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now they've already brought the good news. They went to Jerusalem. They stirred up trouble. Like, hey, the king's here. Where do we go? They're joyous. They're worshiping and they are generous. Now we're, I think for the most part, all familiar with gold. Uh, it's very beautiful, very precious. Uh, it was used to decorate the Ark of the Covenant, the thing, that throne seat in the Old Testament. It is a sign of great wealth. It has carried great value. For those who are unfamiliar, frankincense, it comes out of Arabia. And 
the Lord tells Moses in Exodus, you're going to use frankincense to make a special incense, but not for yourselves, but for me. It is going to be holy to you. In Leviticus, frankincense was used in the grain offering. So likewise, these magi are bringing frankincense for the holy king. They want to be generous. They want to give according to his worth as much as they can. And myrrh is also used in perfumes. It is very valuable. Uh, Myrrh was a part of Esther's beautifying treatment as she became queen. And again, the wise men, knowing who they're going to, knowing who they're going to see, they bring these gifts that are fit for royalty. These are men who counseled rulers. They were in the court of kings. They, they, and so they brought gifts fit for a king and they gave abundantly. They see Jesus and their generosity overflows. This, this is how they respond. They just yield everything that they have. They just yield it to the Lord. They give according to what they have received. They give according to what they had. And then they give it to this little child for he is the king. He is the savior. These magi are exceedingly generous. And this is the mark of generosity is a mark of the Christian faith. Matter of fact, it puts a story that we see in Matthew 19, which comes in stark contrast, but it puts it in that in a different perspective. See, in Matthew 19, there's this rich young man, and he comes up to Jesus, and he thinks he's got everything figured out. He's like, I have followed all of the law, which is a very bold claim. And Jesus basically asked him, have you followed the law? And he's like, yes, I have followed the law. What, have I, what, and the, what the ruler wants to know is, how do I get into heaven? I want that eternal life. I've done everything correctly. And after the back and forth, Jesus tells him this. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. And it ends on this very sad verse. When the young man had heard this, and he went away sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. Now one great preacher of the faith states this. Here we have Jesus making it easy for him. The path laying down the road, the path easy to eternal life, and he fails to do it. This man who has arguably done everything that he is supposed to cannot fathom what it would mean to be as generous as the Christ who has come to redeem. He is shackled by his wealth. He clings to it. 
And so I want to exhort you this morning, the appropriate response to hearing the news of Jesus and to putting your faith in him and to having salvation is to be giving. It is to be generous. In Romans, as Paul is listing uh, the roles of members of the church, he lists those who are generous as part of the church. They have a role, they have a function as part of the church. Just being generous. In 2 Corinthians, Paul lauds the Macedonian church for their generosity. He notes that they, they have extreme poverty. But they give according to their means. This is the underlying, one of the many underlying assumptions that the writers have about the church. The church is to be generous. Its members, her members are to be generous. It is by Christ's generosity in which we are saved. We often, when we say, we look forward to Christ's return. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to the fullness of redemption and eternal life. Because that's our hope. That's that's what's been secured by Jesus. But when we look at how Jesus secured our salvation, we realize his incredible generosity because Christ was on the heavenly throne. He's surrounded by angels. He's praised and worshipped as he should be. We see this in a marvelous, uh, the marvelous call of Isaiah in chapter 6. Like There's a throne room in his robe and the train of his robe is so magnificent it just fills the temple. And his name is praised. The gifts that the Magi give Christ had an abundance without rust or spoil, without any degradation. And he generously gives all of that up. He leaves it behind to become a human, to become man, to live life on earth. He leaves the throne room where to go to a place where he knows hunger, he, he knows pain, he knows betrayal and rejection, he knows what it means to be mocked. He gives all of it up to go to the cross that we may be saved. He endures all of this for his people, for those who put their faith in Jesus. He makes us brothers and sisters. He calls the church his bride that we may partake in the heavenly things that Christ already knows. So no wonder you have the elders in Revelation just taking their crowns and casting it before the throne. We are to be generous because Christ's incredible love and generosity. Everything we have, 
is because Christ has given them to us. Everything we own, everything in our lives, is something that the Lord has provided. The Magi had coffers of treasures and riches. But they go to Jesus and they know he is far greater than these things. And we should respond with like unselfishness. We should have that same response. We should look to Jesus. We should know our Savior and know he is far greater than the things that we have. And so we should be bountiful abundant in our kindness and giving. So as we come to Jesus, as we look to the Savior, as we celebrate the incarnation and his wonderful love and grace and mercy, let us be like the wise men. Let us rejoice. Let us have great joy. Let us encourage one another in exceeding joy. Let us worship with the fullness of our being. Let's not hold anything back. And let us be generous in celebration of our Savior, in celebration of our salvation, and in celebration of Christ. Let us be giving and yield everything to the Lord. For Christ has come and he will come again. This is marvelous, wonderful news. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Christ has come. Let us not be fools, but be wise. Lord, I ask that we may know the great joy of knowing the Savior. I pray that we may lose ourselves to that joy. I pray that we may lose ourselves in worship and we lose ourselves in generosity and celebration of the marvelous salvation that Christ has provided. For he is our king, he is our brother, he is our savior, and his love is unending. Father, let us praise his name, let us praise the Lord in all of our breaths. In Jesus' name, amen.